When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Simona Fulton, who's an independent filmmaker and journalist covering the Middle East. Simona wrote a really interesting reported piece for us in our latest issue of Prospect about Hezbollah in Lebanon and why they haven't yet been drawn into an all-out war with Israel. Today she's joining us to discuss that piece, but also the wider dynamics in the Middle East. Simona, it's lovely to have you with us. Where are you speaking to us from? Thank you for having me, Alan. I am currently in Austria. And um, it was a few weeks ago now that you were in Lebanon reporting for us on what felt like quite a tense situation there in the weeks after Israel's ground invasion of Gaza began. Can you tell us a bit about what the mood was when you were in Lebanon at that time and what really you were hoping to understand? Right. So very quickly after the the war in Gaza began, and in fact, almost immediately after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, there was a fear in Lebanon that this would be potentially the first place where the conflict would spill over. So people immediately looked towards Hezbollah, which is uh, the paramilitary group that is uh, very powerful and, you know, um, is described as the uh, the de facto state uh, in Lebanon, because, you know, besides having a very powerful military wing, it also uh, plays an important role in politics and society. So many were looking towards Hezbollah's reaction, uh, whether it would enter the war. And indeed, uh, within 24 hours on October 8th, um, Hezbollah uh, sent the first barrage of rockets um, into Israel. It was a very carefully calibrated message targeting the Sheba farms, which are a disputed territory that is currently occupied by Israel. And that attack aimed to signal Hezbollah's support for Hamas. Now, Hezbollah and Hamas are both part of what we call, or what is called the axis of resistance. And this is a loose alliance of state and non-state actors, uh, including Hezbollah, Hamas, armed groups in Iraq, as well as Syria, the Houthis in Yemen, as well as Iran and Syria. And so the message that Hezbollah was sending is that it is backing its ally Hamas in the immediate aftermath of, of its attack on Israel. Now, that was a very clear message, but it was also a rather limited attack 
targeting these disputed, disputed territories, which Lebanon is laying a claim to. And as we saw in the days after, Hezbollah didn't really want to fully escalate this conflict. It wanted to show its support for Hamas. It wanted to, um, as uh, its chief Hassan Nasrallah said in, in one of his speeches, it wanted to distract the Israeli army by having to oh, fight on, on two fronts simultaneously. But what we saw in the days after was that there were gradually escalating tit-for-tat attacks along what is called the Blue Line, which is the UN demarcated border that separates uh, Lebanon and Israel. It is, in fact, not a border. It is the withdrawal line for the Israeli army uh, from the last time when, when Lebanon and Israel were at war. That border still remains to be demarcated. But essentially, the clash is very much focused around that Blue Line initially. And, uh, and it kind of reassured people initially that perhaps this conflict was not going to escalate, that it would remain in line with the so-called unwritten rules of engagement that had kind of been in place since the last war uh, in 2006, which was that um, both sides would only target military installations and personnel and that those attacks would remain within five kilometers um, of the blue line. So that's kind of like what we saw initially, but very quickly, um, those rules of engagement were being challenged and pushed. And we started to see civilian casualties. Initially on the Lebanese side, we saw um, a journalist, a Lebanese journalist, Issam Abdallah, being killed by an Israeli tank shell in what rights groups said was a deliberate targeting. Um, we saw also the killing of other Lebanese civilians. And in response, Hezbollah then also began targeting civilians. We also saw these the strikes from the Israeli side going deeper and deeper into Lebanese territory, um, which signaled a certain widening of the conflict. And, you know, with, with each of these strikes, there was this sense that the country would hold its breath and wait for Hezbollah's response, wait to see what is the red line? Because the red line has not been very clearly declared. I mean, yes, Nasrallah has in the past said that um, if there was targeting of um, of you know assassinations or targeting of of Hamas leaders or or Lebanese, that there there would be an, a retaliation and escalation. But you know, as we saw the conflict escalate, it it felt like it wasn't entirely clear what the action would be that would push. Hezbollah into all-out war. And there was also interestingly, um, you know, when when I spoke to Lebanese officials who were not part of Hezbollah, the way they read Hezbollah's response is that they're actually trying to be rational, that they're showing relative restraint, because there is a number of factors playing into their decision-making, right? So, Sure, they're, Hamas is one of their allies. They're ideologically aligned to have a similar position towards Israel, but there are also a lot of domestic interests that are guiding Hezbollah's decision making. And one of them is that, first of all, the Lebanese economy um, is not doing well at all since 2019, when uh, essentially the, the financial sector collapsed. And uh, with that came essentially a lot of challenges in everyday life in terms of operating the economy, getting electricity, getting money out of the banks. And so people are at a point where they feel like they cannot 
bear more, that a conflict would simply add further pressure that they, are, they cannot sustain. And Hezbollah is very much aware of that because it doesn't want to lose its support and legitimacy domestically. And also it doesn't want to ignite internal strife with um, other components of, of Lebanon's very diverse society. So essentially, you know, all of this was kind of factoring into into Hezbollah's decision making. And and I think there was a key speech beginning of November in which Hassan Nasrallah said that, you know, it is supporting Hamas, but that the primary burden of fighting Israel had to remain on Hamas's shoulders. So the, the, the message was very clear. But what we've seen since then is that, you know, it has felt to people watching from Lebanon that it is, in fact, Israel that is trying to push Hezbollah into a war that is trying to escalate. And the way this has been justified by, by some Lebanese officials is that um, this, this might be, you know, a, a good opportunity to try to, to challenge Hezbollah, which would politically serve, especially Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. That's how this is explained by, by Lebanese officials. So this was very much kind of the sentiment in Lebanon at that time, this kind of Fear on one hand, but also kind of then analyzing and looking at Hezbollah's actions and hoping that they will not drag the country into another war. So, I mean, in your reporting, you mentioned the word restraint there and also here. And that's kind of the picture that you saw a few weeks ago was, as you say, a country that doesn't actually necessarily need that extra period of instability, the great you know, unsettling that uh, an all-out war would would cause for the Lebanese people as well. I mean, since you reported that, we've seen some other kind of flashpoints emerge and become much more concerning elsewhere in the Middle East, notably, of course, in the Red Sea. Where else are you looking now in the Middle East as sort of the potential flashpoints for escalation if Hezbollah does you know, perhaps hold its nerve, if that's the right way to say it, or, you know, hold on to that restraint. So Hezbollah is the most powerful actor in this so-called axis of resistance. And, you know, some people would even argue that it is the one taking the lead after the United States assassinated Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad in 2020. Um, Soleimani was this, you know, very uh, charismatic and powerful figure who really invested a lot in expanding and building this network of aligned actors in the region. And with his demise, um, it was very difficult to replace uh, him with a person who could extend the same kind of influence. So Hezbollah's role became more important. And a lot of these actors in the region are, in fact, looking to Hezbollah for guidance. So when when Hassan Nasrallah, for example, in one of his speeches, um, he he really dedicated a lot of time in his speech on uh, Hezbollah's Martyrs Day in November to lauding the actions of the other um, armed groups in this axis of resistance. He mentioned the Houthis. He mentioned the the Iraqi armed groups who are launching attacks in both uh, Iraq and Syria, targeting American forces. And so you can also sense from his side that he's kind of taking on this leadership role, encouraging the resistance groups across the region to take greater action. And I think it's really important to talk about why they're doing this. I think when you look at Western media coverage, all too often these actors are reduced to Iranian proxies. They're, a lot of them are designated by the United States as terrorist organizations, so they will be referred to as such. And I think that is problematic because it really discounts them to 
you know, these, these actors who commit violence for the sake of violence, who don't really have interests of their own and who just act at Tehran's behest. And that's an extremely simplistic picture because if that's the kind of approach you're taking to understanding them, that it means that you, you can't also come up with the right solution to this conflict because you don't actually understand what drives them. So I think it's important to talk about that a little bit. So what is, who are these actors, right? And what is driving their decision-making and their involvement? So I think, you know, when we look at Iraq, for example, um, there you have um, the, the, the so-called Iraqi resistance groups, and the most powerful of them is Kataib Hezbollah. And this group sprang up in response to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So it has its roots in fighting occupation, uh, in fighting what they see as negative Western influence in the region. And so when they look at Israel and what Israel is doing in Gaza, for them, it's very much connected. It is a different side of the same coin. So it, it really kind of, you know, Western support for Israel and its military operations in Gaza, which have by now killed more than 20,000 people, really brings back these memories from the, from the Iraq war and the really bloody aftermath that claimed hundreds of thousands of lives in Iraq. So there is some genuine solidarity. There is no doubt about it. And, you know, that doesn't mean that there are not also other political motivations. For sure, you know, these groups, they, they also want to, you know, show that they are, you know, resisting. They want to bolster their resistance credentials and, and essentially also like rally their troops and, and show their constituents that we are standing up to the, to the West and to the Americans and to Israel. So there is definitely a political side of it, but that doesn't mean that there is not a genuine empathy and sympathy for, for Palestinians. And I think if we look to their statements, so since, since these groups began attacking American troops again after uh, the October 7th attack, and, and that was after a year of relative quiet in Iraq, it was a sudden end to a year-long truce, they began publishing statements uh, in a very united way. You know, previously it had been rather fragmented, but they created a dedicated telegram channel and started publishing these statements in which they claimed responsibility for these attacks very clearly. And in each and every statement, they write, responding to the massacres committed against our brethren in Gaza. So this is very clear. And the Houthis have been saying very similar things whenever they in Yemen or in the Red Sea attack commercial ships. They also claim responsibility, saying that this is in response to, for example, Israel's siege on Gaza. So, you know, it's interesting because in the beginning, we had some U.S. officials, I believe it was the defense secretary, who, died, who in the very beginning denied any links between the attacks in Iraq and what is going on in Gaza, and that is simply not true. Now, of course, there is also political interest, as I mentioned, and I think the, the big question here is to what extent Iran is directing these groups. And and I don't think that's something that's very well understood. There There is no doubt that Iran has helped create these groups, that it has helped train them, that it has helped arm them, especially in the beginning. This is also the case with Lebanese Hezbollah. But if we look at, for example, the Iraqi groups, Iraq is a very rich country. It is one of the biggest oil exporters in the world. And groups like Qatar Hezbollah have used their military power to commandeer a significant part of the economy. And I've spoken with Qatar Hezbollah officials in the past who have told me that they no longer need Iranian support. And 
And I think that there's a very good chance that this is true, that in fact the financial flow might be going the other way around from Iraq to Iran, especially since the country has been under sanctions. But of course, there is very much an ideological alignment, right? They see eye to eye with Tehran. They have the same outlook on the region. They have the same outlook on the West. But whether Iran is giving the orders here, I have a doubt about that. I think these actors very much act on also their, their individual domestic interests. And sometimes they align and sometimes they don't. After the break, we'll talk more about rising tensions in the Middle East and possible avenues to de-escalation. But first, I'd like to tell you about a new offer. Enjoy one month's free trial to Prospect's digital content and get full access to rigorously fact-checked, truly independent analysis and perspectives. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this great deal, please search for Prospect One Month Free Trial. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'll offer. Where does all of this leave the US in particular, and how it's going to respond to these attacks. At the moment, it seems the the precise nature of the US response is a little unclear as we speak. So how do you see the kind of Western reaction unfolding, particularly that of the United States? I think that's an excellent question, because we have seen the US try to get involved to avoid um, an escalation, a regional escalation and an all-out war. So the US has made it very clear to Israel that it does not want this to spill over and to escalate. And we have also seen American officials traveling to Lebanon, trying to pressure the Lebanese government to rein in Hezbollah, trying to pressure the Iraqi government to rein in those groups. But, you know, this approach really fails to recognize the root cause of the problem, because the reason why these groups are responding the way they are is because of what Israel is doing in Gaza. So. What they want is that these attacks will stop the moment there is a ceasefire in Gaza. That is their demand, and they've made this very clear. Instead, what the United States is doing, first of all, it is responding by bombing these groups, which is which it says is self-defense. Now, you could really 
it, you know, it's, it's really kind of a stretch to try to justify how bombing the Houthis in Yemen is self-defense for the United States, because, you know, in the end, the only thing that does is to harden their attitudes and to further escalate the conflict, because what these groups feel is that the United States is not understanding or refusing to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And they're just essentially layering grievance upon grievance instead of addressing the root cause of the problem. So, you know, we have now seen in, in, in Iraq most recently that Kataib Hezbollah, you know, after one of its um, attacks or one of the attacks of the Iraqi resistance, we're not exactly sure which group it was, but Kataib Hezbollah has been carrying out the majority of attacks. Um, one of those attacks in uh, on the Jordanian-Syrian border with Iraq actually killed three U.S. servicemen. And those were the first American fatalities since uh, the Gaza war began. And of course, it's again one of those moments where everybody holds their breath and waits for the response. And President Biden has said that there will be a response from the United States. So since then, we have, we have seen Hezbollah take a step back and announce for now the, the suspension of hostilities. The Iraqi government has said it is because the Iraqi government has managed to essentially calm Kataib Hezbollah down. But we all know in reality that um, the Iraqi government has struggled for years to rein in these actors and that especially during times uh, of conflict, even though you know parts of them are officially integrated into the security apparatus of the state and they're supposed to answer to the, to the commander in chief, in times of conflict, that doesn't really happen. And they end up, you know, acting outside of the chain of command. So to what extent the Iraqi government actually managed to do that? I think there's a big question mark around that. Um, some analysts are saying that it was, in fact, uh, Tehran that tried to pressure these groups to cool it down so that probably it wouldn't face the, the retaliation from the United States. But again, this is not a solution. So it's, it, it, it's probably a temporary suspension of military activity. But what is really needed is for the international community to recognize the, the root causes and the grievances that are driving these actors to lash out and to address those root causes because everything else is just going to be a band-aid solution and you will see these conflicts you know bubbling up again and again over the years to come one potential route to de-escalation that's been suggested um, including in a leader article in the economist magazine and elsewhere is that is to go back to the situation in gaza to those talks around hostage releases and a deal there that could somehow perhaps change the approach of Israel and, and you know, and then lead to negotiations towards an end to the violence and a, and a proper ceasefire. How credible do you find that argument and that potential avenue to, to peace? The hostage exchange is a start and it's the easiest start for both sides because um, it, it is absolutely, you know, it's, it's a top priority for both. But it's, it's again, you know, it's just an entry point. Ultimately, the reason why Hamas says that it carried out the attacks on October 7th, it was because of the hopelessness that Palestinians were facing with a growing share of Palestinian land being annexed by settlers with increasing violence in Jerusalem at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, with uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government essentially completely 
discarding any possibility for a Palestinian state or a two-state solution. So it was this desperation that prompted them to carry out this attack. And I think it's important to to mention that because a lot of people have been trying to say, well, no, this conflict started on October 7th and don't, they don't want to hear or talk about this context. And the context is not to justify Hamas's actions. I mean, it was the attacks they carried out killed more than a thousand people, most of them civilians. They committed atrocities, potential war crimes that are still being investigated. But I think we still need to understand the why, because that is where, where the solution is. So I think while you know the hostage deal will potentially be a start, and I think exchange of hostages is one of the major reasons why Hamas carried out uh, the attacks in the first place. You know, it now there is a host of other issues that needs to be addressed. Um, you have this this massive destruction of Gaza, more than twenty five thousand people killed. Um, that you you hear constantly messages coming out of Israel, essentially advocating for resettlement of Gaza. So there there are just so many other issues that need to be addressed. I think the hostage negotiations are perhaps the first step, but I think Hamas also feels that, well, once we let go all the hostages, Israel will just resume. And that's why they need more. They need a concrete path um, to a proper settlement of all the issues that they have been raising. And if that is not done, it's it's difficult to see the way out of this. And I think this is where the United States and the international community is extremely important because they need to apply pressure so that there is an actual path towards a two-state solution and, and towards addressing the grievances that have been afflicting Palestinians for decades. Throughout this conflict, Qatar has also been a key kind of broker between Hamas and Israel in in those early days when there you know was more progress on the release of Israeli hostages held in Gaza are they still a, a key player in this so so Qatar has unique leverage over Hamas uh, because they have been you know providing financial support they have been you know providing diplomatic support for a really long time. So they they are well positioned because they simply have the leverage uh, and the access. And I think Hamas was was quite, you know, willing to engage in these negotiations uh, in the beginning. But I think, you know, Qatar doesn't have leverage over Israel, right? There there needs to be there needs to be other parties to this that bring the two sides together and and really pressure them to commit by whatever they agree to. And I think the United States ultimately plays the decisive role here. If it continues to insist on Israel's right to self-defense, then that's actually seen as a carte blanche for it to continue with its current military campaign. And there is very little reason uh, to stop um, or respond to any kind of offers uh, that are coming. How important do you think the action in the international criminal court is in in terms of building that pressure on Israel? That's a very good question. I think that um, the decision was really a landmark decision. It was really the first time that an international court recognized the, the plight of the Palestinians that has been going on for so long. And it essentially confirmed that it was plausible that genocide was being committed. Um, and it also um, demanded that Israel report back within a month to present evidence on how it is trying to prevent genocide from from taking place. So 
it, it has it has definitely placed some public pressure on Israel, but I think you know as long as Israel continues to receive uh, billions of dollars in military aid, as long as um, you know Western governments on the same day of the ruling, rather than um, supporting the international court uh, of justice by respecting its uh, its decision instead decide to withdraw funding from UNRWA, it doesn't send the right message. Um, so in terms of actually being able to force Israel to stop uh, what is going on in Gaza, I think it will require bilateral pressure from the countries that are providing military aid that are essentially uh, backing Israel on the international stage. And and there we have not seen that much movement. And Simona, so tell us where else you're going next in your reporting. What are the stories that you're hoping to to be looking into? So I will be heading uh, to Iraq uh, in the coming days to to try and see what the ripple effects are of this conflict on the country. So Iraq still has around 2,500 uh, coalition troops who've been there uh, since 2014 when they were invited into the country to help fight ISIS. And their presence has become more of a controversial issue since ISIS was territorially defeated in 2017. There is a sense that um, the main reason why those troops are in fact there is, is to provide a counterweight to Iran, which is Iraq's eastern neighbor. And also to prop up the uh, the Syrian uh, democratic forces in um, in eastern Syria, the Kurdish forces who helped the coalition fight ISIS. So there has even until now been quite a push to um, to let's say accelerate the withdrawal of American forces. And what what the war in Gaza has done is that it has uh, it has reinforced those demands. So what these some of these uh, groups like Qatayb Hezbollah have been saying all along is that we want the American forces to leave. And with you know what is going on in the region now, that stance has just uh, been hardened. It's it's additional proof that the presence of American troops in the region is a destabilizing factor. And in fact, the Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani has said that much at, uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, that for Iraq to find stability, American forces need to leave so that Iraq can just have a normal bilateral relationship with the United States. And so it's very interesting now to see what will happen because the United States does not want to withdraw under fire. Obviously, it needs to also save face and withdraw in a manner that is seen as dignified. But at the same time, there is more pressure from the Iraqi government that this withdrawal should happen sooner than later so that the situation calms down. So it's, it's quite interesting how that will play out in the coming weeks and months. Well, it sounds really like an important story to tell. And thank you so much for giving us all of your insights today into the still very uncertain situation in the Middle East. So Simona, thank you very much for coming. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much to Simona for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do pick up a copy of Prospect Magazine to read about Simona's reporting from Lebanon. On our website and on our app, you can read all of Prospect's journalism, including historian Avi Schleim's powerful essay on the destruction of Gaza and the historical roots of the conflict between Israel and Palestinians.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.